Now, please stand as we will hear from our great Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and going till verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 11. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. You may be seated. It is a well-known truth, ironically, that in today's American culture, objective truth is dead, even though they consider that to be an objective truth. That is, as Francis Schaeffer said, perhaps the closest thing we have to a modern-day prophet, cultural prophet at least, nearly everyone no longer believes. If something is true, then its opposite is false. For example, if someone is a man, then they are not a woman. Or if something is black, then it is not white. And most basically, if something is true, then it is not false, etc., etc. In our non-binary world, people can no longer accept only two options. Especially, they cannot accept truth and falsity as opposite categories. Contrasts are discrimination, so they would say. And so we must muddle everything into spectrums or messy, manipulative truths, or far worse, by manipulations of sophists who believe there is no truth. And so they manipulate to get their desires through the power of words. And so we have found in our own day that this is true. When this way of thinking, if something is true, then its opposite is false, dies in any culture, then all that remains is power and the people who want to get it who buy and trade in lies, and whose lips swell with arrogance. Not only is this true in our own day, but it was true in the day of the judges, the era that we are now in in Scripture. 
Israel was meant to be a light unto the nations, but instead of the tribes of Israel following God and his law, absolute truth himself, I might add, they famously did as the author of Judges reports over and over again. Everyone did was right in their own eyes. A better summary of the death of objective truth in a culture is not to be found anywhere. All that remained was power and those who seek it in the eyes of that culture. But our God is a God of contrasts. He is a God of truth and not falsity. For our God is a God of reversals of fortune, who hates the wicked, whose tongue strut through the earth in pride and arrogance. The Lord is God, and as a God of knowledge, he desires everyone to know, especially in a world dominated by raw power as those who seek it. God desires everyone to know who really controls, who really is in power in this world, who really weighs actions. And God does this through choosing, choosing his people, the lowly saint, and the subsequent use of those lowly saints so that none can mistake where their strength comes from. Power comes from the Lord, For as Hannah says in our passage, not by might shall a man prevail and becomes one of two central prophecies which direct the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. Words, these words for might and power, in fact, are the most numerous in the song of Hannah. It's the theme of this prayer. For although it is rightly called Hannah's song by us, it is obviously poetry and very tightly constructed, even used for a song later on, as we did here in, uh, even in our worship service with Psalm 113, which we heard before. Yet even with all this, Scripture calls it a prayer. Verse 1 is from verses like this that we recognize that to sing to our God is a form of prayer. When we sing the hymn of illumination each Sunday, we are looking back over 3,000 years to Hannah and worshiping our common Savior through common ways, prayer through song. Yet Hannah's song doesn't start as a corporate worship song. Hannah's song starts out as a song of praise for God's answered prayer for her, God's work in Hannah's life to give her a son, as she asked. The song starts in an intensely personal manner in verses 1 and 2, where Hannah speaks her own heart to the Lord, and then the God which She knows and loves and rejoices in him. So first we go to the rejoicing heart, exulting in God. This is verses 1 and 2. The rejoicing heart exulting first as well in the strength of God. This is verse 1. The word Hannah uses in verse 1 is well translated as exult because exult not only has the connotation of to leap with joy as is here in this word, but a good definition of exult even in English would be to be joyous from triumph. Hannah is praising God for her triumph over her enemy, her rival, Peninnah, who has derided her for a closed womb for so long. But notice in this passage, she never names Peninnah. Hannah is more interested in exalting God than deriding her enemies specifically. She says, my mouth derides my enemies. Yes, in this verse. But for what reason? She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. Rejoicing in God's salvation results in showing our enemies that they are not powerful. 
and the way they think. Hannah does not say that she is powerful in herself, but she says, my heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. It is in the Lord that she is powerful and now is exalted, that she can exalt her own horn. Taking a picture from the animal kingdom, like the mighty mature deer in comparison to the young spiked horned deer, Hannah's might and beauty are raised above her enemies. How? In the Lord's strength. She has been lent strength that is not her own. It is the Lord's salvation from shame, not her own work. And we ought also to recognize this. We ought also to to desire this. That is, as the Latin saying says, life is not to live merely, brothers and sisters, but life is to be strong. Do not be deceived by the world around us. There is nothing wrong with power in itself. However, be strong in the strength of his might. Unless you do this, not only will you be weak, but because of your weakness, as we are all weak, you will not exult or rejoice in anything if it is not in his strength. As Psalm 127 says, Unless the the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Let us thank the Lord for everything that we earn, for whatever is earned, so-called, is received of God. Hannah recognizes just how independent she is, just how in the Lord her salvation and strength and triumph are, so she turns to praising that great God of her glorious strength. So she turns to the God of strength. And verse 2, the only holy, true, and trustworthy God. Her victory is so much the product of her God that she turns immediately to him from her victory to the victor. God himself and contemplates him. Isn't it interesting here that the doctrine of God is in the forefront? The prime focus of this woman, the doctrine of God, is not the purview merely of the high and educated, but the common love of everyone who loves God and desires to praise him. Look how Hannah, a woman 3,000 years ago, who were not even quite sure if she knew how to read, knew God and knew the doctrine of God. That is our common love, friends. Let us know our God. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. His holiness is to be set apart and is taken here for all of God's virtues. For God is pure and set apart in all things, and he has shown in Hannah's life that he is this. He has shown his holiness in his defense of the weak and in answering prayer, Hannah's prayer, graciously. God is set apart from all other gods by his actions towards his faithful ones. And in fact, Hannah's son has been set apart for a holy work as well unto the Lord, which is part of why she rejoices. In God's holiness, Samuel will be set apart and enjoy God's holiness as well. In some, here we, we find, none are holy like God, and none participate in holiness but by God. And why is God set apart from all others in Hannah's mind? She says, for there is none beside you. Hannah knows what all Israel ought to have known at this time. Not only that none but God are holy, but really none, at least of the gods, are 
but God. That is, only God is independent, completely of himself. It is only God who can say about all creation, so independent and exalted and holy as he, all the nations are as nothing before him. All the nations and creation are as nothing. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Only God can say this, Isaiah 40, 17. Only God is the true God, which makes the next statement of Hannah so emphatic. There is no rock like our God. God is what all the stone idols could never be. Solid, dependable, powerful, a fortress of refuge, and most basically, trustworthy. Human strength is weakness in comparison to God. Human wisdom is foolishness in comparison with even what seems like the foolishness of God. It is upon this theme that Hannah continues. She compares the seemingly mighty and proud, those who continue in their own strength and consider themselves rocks, with God himself, the rock. As she rejoices next, comparing God's might over against the seemingly mighty in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 2. So Hannah first speaks to the arrogant multitude in verse 3, telling them that they have nothing to boast about. Speak you not so lofty, lofty, as it actually is literally in Hebrew. Let not insolence go out of your mouth, for the Lord is God. He is a God of knowledge, and with him deeds are weighed. He is a God of knowledge, that is, nothing is unknown to him. He is not swayed by words or by ostentation. When we are puffed up, he sees through our pomp and circumstances, and the small and weak people that we are come out. God is in control. He weighs the deeds of men upon the scale of truth and finds them wanting. The days that are to come are the days of judgment against the wicked nations around Israel in First and Second Samuel. The revealing and ruin of many arrogant people. Of course, he starts with the household of Israel, as we will find out in even chapter 2 uh, uh, later on. He starts in Israel and judges the wicked. The revealing ruin of these people. May the Lord do this in our own day as well, brothers and sisters. May he destroy the wicked. The whole section points us to God's reversals of fortune as well. His just weighed actions as compared with the arrogant. He takes the barren woman and makes her have several children. Seven children, in fact, the ideal number. He takes the weaker brother in Jacob and not the stronger in Esau. He brings out Israel from slavery to freedom from Egypt, simultaneously breaking their military strength with the falling of the Red Sea upon them. This section of Hannah's song is as much a meditation upon God's works of the past as it is a prophecy of what is to come in the future. God is a rock, and he does not change. He is trustworthy, and his actions are trustworthy, and judgments are trustworthy. It is upon this trustworthiness that Hannah returns and meditates finally in this last section in verses 8 through 11 as we turn. Since God is trustworthy, she will trust him, and not in what seems to be true according to the pomp of humans. Hannah calls her people to trust, especially in the two prophecies in these few next words. So the rejoicing heart trusts 
and God's sovereign rule and anointed ruler. This is verses 8 through 11. This word Hannah uses here first, or rather mostly here, faithful ones, in verse 9 is very important. It could be well translated, one for whom God has pledged his covenant love. It is God's electing love here, his covenant faithfulness applied to his people, for it is a noun form of steadfast love, chesed, in Hebrew, as we even heard in the assurance of pardon. It is a highly covenantal term, and its New Testament equivalent is saint, which means holy one unto God. These people are the set-apart people of God. They are the people of faith, the people of the covenant of grace, who trust in the promise of God to bring the seed of the woman, their Savior. This whole song is about the trust of a person of faith in the unchangeable God, our rock, and the consequences of arrogance before him. Therefore, God says, through Hannah, a prophecy of great consequence. The verses which summarize the future events of First, of first and Second Samuel most succinctly. The two main promises which Israel is to trust in the book of Samuel. First, the prophecy of the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. For not by might shall a man prevail... The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Israel is to trust that God will bring them victory in the most extreme danger. For God has chosen his covenant people and he will show his might and show his strength, especially in Israel's weakness, just as he did with Hannah. Learn this, brothers and sisters. God does not change. And when you are at your weakest, then apply to God in faith. You must expect victory in his strength. And even with this momentous word, they are followed by words of even more moment. Here is the second prophecy, which summarizes not only First and Second Samuel, but all of redemptive revelation, even to our present day at the end of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Obviously, this points to David. Saul was the choice of the people, the one who looked strong, the one who was a head taller than everyone else, the king after the heart of the nations, which lusted after physical might. But David was the choice of God. As God prophesied through Hannah, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed and not another. But as we've spoken about before, David himself recognized that he could not be the rock that Israel needed. God was to be the king of Israel. And yet there was one to come, a man to be the king. How is this to be resolved? David could not be because, specifically, not only did he die, but he fails to do what he sets out. That is, make a kingdom and a king which will endure through the ages and have a king which is set firmly upon the throne with the heart of God. Now, in fact, the book of Samuel ends with David sinning grievously again against the Lord with a census that not only results in David's punishment, but 70,000 men died in Israel through God's judgment of this action to the king. David had begun at this time to believe his own myth and counted the people that they might see just how strong he was. 
He had forgotten, not by might, nor by power, and had the blood of his people upon his hands. The book of Samuel is not an apology for David as the anointed one forever, as the one that was to come from Genesis 3.15. The book of Samuel is for another, the Messiah, the anointed one, as the man after God's own heart forever. He certainly was the progenitor, progenitor, that is, David was, of the great Messiah, who was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 to come, as we'll find from David's line. But David could not be that Messiah, which God prophesied even in Genesis, because David died. 2 Samuel 23 records his last words, even in this book. Who was this anointed, this Messiah, verse 10? The word here translated literally as anointed is well translated, but we know this word more familiarly as Messiah or Christ. God will exalt the horn of his anointed, the horn of his Messiah, so says God. So what makes, as we continue on to our examination of who this Messiah is, a man successful? What makes a man successful in Israel? It's not actually revealed in this song. Isn't it interesting? God tells us negatively what does, what does not cause a man to prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail, says God. Be a man ever so strong and wealthy, he will not prevail in the future by his own might. But we will find the Lord finishing this statement in Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. It's important to focus on this because we, were we to look at this text without Zechariah 4.6, we might conclude that it is the faithful of verse 9 who prevail. That is the people who are one in the covenant people and two seemingly merit their station by their covenant obedience, although they be poor or weak in a worldly sense. So if we were to think this, we would think of might for these people, but in a different way, a merit through the force of will. But this isn't what the text is teaching us, nor any of 1st or 2nd Samuel, the fulfillment of Hannah's song. It is not the people who are the most dutiful in their observances of the law which prevail. It is by my spirit people. That is, the spiritual, capital S, people, and ones who are owned by, led by, and given strength by, and even to persevere through any problem the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? Spirit people are weak. They are weak, but live in the strength that the Spirit gives. Dutiful people are strong-willed. They are strong in one way, but often live without physical strength. We are spirit people. We are weak, but with the Spirit. We will find in our story many strong people in Israel. David and his mighty men are possibly among the strongest in history. They have killed tens of thousands all on their own. We will find many dutiful people in our history. But duty itself, doing spiritual actions, is no substitute for the spirit. Saul kept up the appearance of doing what was right, but even did some right things, according to the duty given to him as a king, but because he was not a spirit person, and did it in his own strength, he never did them correctly. On the other hand, David even did horrible things, things for which he could never atone upon himself. 
And yet, because he was a spirit person, he repented and acted in accord with God's own heart. Do you see the difference? The spirit person, he repented. The spirit person, like David, will do what is right because the spirit is his. The dutiful person, like Saul, will try to do what is right, but will always fail because they're without faith. So that when God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, he is speaking of every might besides himself. Whether physical, mental, willful, or dutiful, whatever we might bring to overcome God and his demands on our own strength, we will fail. So that the kingdom of God at the time of Hannah is no different than the kingdom of God in our own day. It is still not by might, it is still not by power, but by his spirit that we prevail. There are, in fact, only, there's only one person that God promises to give might and power to, his principal instruments in the epic history of Israel, in verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The king and the anointed are the one same person, and he will have strength, that is, of his own. As be king, one must be anointed, yes. However, that doesn't work in reverse. To be anointed does not mean that you are anointed king. That is because anointing is anointing for a specific purpose. David will be anointed king. But in the history of Israel, prophets and priests were also anointed. It is from this activity of anointing that we get our three categories, the famous three categories, and only three anointed people in history. The prophet, priest, and king were the anointed ones. Which Jesus fulfills as the Christ, the Messiah, literally the anointed one of all of these offices. This song and trust of Hannah and Elkanah for their God is immediately put to the test in the next section, as we'll see next week. But let us learn, brothers and sisters that we are not in power, nor are we powerful. It is God's salvation, God's salvation, accomplished by Christ and applied by his Spirit. Instead of striving for salvation, do we exult in that salvation, as Hannah shows us, and depend upon God's strength who has purchased it? Do we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are mighty to save or preoccupy ourselves with making ourselves seem all right and mighty to our God and to our families and our church family. Brothers and sisters, why are you here this morning? Are you part of a club or are you part of a great salvation that is not your own and exalt in the Lord? Is it to lie to one another that we are all right or to despair that we are not all right, that we are here Or is it to look to God's anointed one, just as Hannah has? Are we here to look upon ourselves and be encouraged that we are mighty? Then you have a non-Christian Canaanite reason for being here, and perhaps even a Canaanite God. Is God our strength? Is he our trust? Is Christ our glory? For Christ prevailed where we cannot, securing salvation by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension where even the mighty David failed. He prevails. Do we look to God's salvation, his steadfast love to us, his covenant people, 
the people of God's love and grace in Jesus Christ? And if so, do we live as if God were in power? Or do we not even ask him for strength? Do we expect nothing from him as if he has not promised, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, and not by might nor by power, but by my spirit? Do we exult like Hannah, or do we expect our own blessing, our every blessing from our own effort? Then we deny Christ his rightful place. Unless Christ purchased it, then we have no strength, as Hannah tells us. We have nothing to argue for ourselves. Were it not for God's love sent in Christ, were it not for Christ's salvation, we would of all people be most to be pitied. You are not powerful, brothers and sisters. But let us praise God that he is powerful and has sent his anointed promised son long ago that his people might be saved and saved to the uttermost. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Oh, great Lord, we thank you that you indeed are powerful, that you are our rock and the rock of the nations is not like our rock. We thank you, Lord, that you are high and exalted, that, Lord, even if you are way in the heavens, you are up there, exalted beyond what we could even comprehend. You have sent your anointed, that we sinful people who deserve nothing but death might be brought up in strength. We ask for forgiveness, Lord. We repent that we have often come in our own strength and we have puffed ourselves up around our neighbors and the people that we see every day and even our church family to seem as if we are good enough in our own strength. But Lord, we pray that you would make us all to point one another to Christ, that we would see you in heaven, that as you sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, your work is finished. And you saved us to the uttermost. Lord, we pray that we would strive, that we might exult in your victory. That we would strive, not for our own salvation, but in gratitude for what you have done. Lord, we pray that we would pray to you and ask of you that we might have strength. So give us strength here at Christ's covenant. We pray and answer our prayers that we might exult and praise you. Lord, we call upon you as our Lord, as our King, as our Savior. May you be glorified in everything we do. We ask all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.